I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. that shows up in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Love Marriage. And I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. So one thing literature can be really good at is drawing attention to what often goes unspoken or overlooked. And October 10th last week was World Mental Health Day. And I've been thinking about the ways in which so much about mental illness is still unfortunately taboo or just misunderstood. Have you ever dealt with mental health issues, Wit? Yeah, in fact, there's a piece on uh, that Dylan Foley did an interview with me that ran in LitHub about, you know, having anxiety issues, serious panic attacks and anxiety disorder issues when I came back from Iraq and when I was struggling with the good lieutenant. Um, and, you know, therapy, which ended up being really helpful for me, was not something that people in my family or like friend group or anyone talked about growing up. I did not know anyone who'd ever gone to counseling or therapy of any sort, you know. And so finally going there at my wife's uh, insistence was super helpful, you know. But it, I understand how it can be a hard thing to talk about publicly. What about you? Yeah, I've also struggled with anxiety and depression at different points in my life. Um, and I think anxiety is maybe the more persistent one for me. And um, I think I also come from communities that are not great at talking about that. The South Asian community is certainly not great at talking about that. And there are a lot of activists working on making it more possible for people to discuss those sorts of situations, which I think can be addressed and don't need to be stigmatized. Um, what advice would you give your younger self if you could, that the you that was just starting to struggle with anxiety? Well, I mean, I, I, you know, that's a really interesting question. I, I've never really thought about that. I guess, you know, I would say to that younger self, like, this is not a big deal. This is a, a thing that can be treated. It's not, you don't have to feel this way. You know, it may not be necessary for you to feel this way all the time. And it's something that you can 
addressed through active measures rather than just sort of passively saying, oh, well, this is me, you know, and that was helpful for me to learn. It's been illuminating to look at things about um, my character and to think about why I get anxious. And I think one of the things is definitely perfectionism. And so I think I would probably go back and encourage my younger self to like mess up a lot, which I did. But then I think I was like pretty good at concealing when I messed up or sort of like thinking that the ramifications of messing up would be like not great. Um, I remember I was the writer in residence at Exeter where the ceramics teacher, the art teacher that year started at the same time as me and gave me this wonderful gift of inviting me into the ceramics class with the Exeter students. And it was such freedom to do this new art and also to feel totally okay with being bad at it. I gave my dad this like misshapen pencil holder. I was like, dad, you can, you can put this in your office. He's like, people know my kid is 25. And I was like, I still love this pencil holder. You know, like I made this art, I enjoyed making it. It is bad. And like, I still love it. And, and that's fine. And, and like, even at that sort of late age, that was a useful lesson for me to learn. So today we have two writers whose work intersects in some way with questions about mental health, taboo, or related to those, the psychological effects of trauma which of course is something it's always important to consider and be sensitive to, but especially now in the light of Judge Kavanaugh's Supreme Court confirmation and Dr. Blasey Ford's accusations against him. We're excited to have Esme Wang, author of The Collected Schizophrenias, join us later in the show to talk about understanding and managing mental illness. But first, we'd like to welcome Idra Novi, author of the 2016 novel Ways to Disappear, as well as the forthcoming novel Those Who Knew. Novi is also a poet and a translator, and her work has appeared in the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, NPR, New York Magazine, and the Paris Review. Idra, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. The reason we're having you on is because you wrote an, uh, this piece in the Paris Review that is like a fiction, nonfiction podcast episode. You know, because we always say that, you know, the news has already been covered in literature. And here you wrote this terrific piece about how the news had already been covered in literature. Um, and the piece is called The Silence of Sexual Assault in Literature. And you talk about a number of pieces, but you start with, you know, Flannery O'Connor's Good Country People, an amazing story. And you use this phrase, artful elision, to describe her method of evoking the silence often imposed by society on survivors of sexual assault. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that story and about its strategy of leaving certain things unsaid as a way of indirectly calling attention to the character's silence and suppressed emotions or memories. Uh, thank you. I, when I was listening to Christine Blasey Ford's testimony and seeing the ignorant responses that it generated uh, all over, you know, the Twitter sphere and elsewhere, especially from. Uh, the current president of this country saying, why didn't Dr. Ford tell her parents? And I think that showed the level of ignorance regarding the forces that push people into silence. And I had just spent four years working on a novel about a woman who felt pushed into silence, who had been assaulted by a man who was powerful in college and only became more so. And for her, um, she didn't tell anyone. She didn't tell her family. She didn't tell her friends. It was a mix of shame. It was a fear of becoming a pariah. All of these things that I think Dr. Christine Blasey Ford also saw as um, as fears that then were realized. Right? She still can't live in her house, and um, you know, there's a, it's, it's it's impacted her whole family. So I was thinking about how if we don't read these books, or even if 
um, you know, people in the country read these books, but they don't know how to read for that silence and um, to, to understand that behind that silence, there is a roar of pain and of something unsaid that we as a society aren't willing to hear um, that this this conversation that has been in, 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 on mute in our literature for a long time, we really needed to be talking about that now and how to be able to hear that silence in what we read and also in the lives of people around us. That sense also comes through in the in the, in the O'Connor story when you talk about the way that the salesman, I mean, I remember this story, that story so well, talking about that it's the wooden leg that may, is what makes her different, you know, and, and sort of he uses this vulnerability against her. Um, I just found that so incredibly powerful. Yeah, I think it is powerful because I think that's often people with a predatorial impulse do. I mean, it's a sociopathic impulse to want to use somebody's vulnerability to leverage it in order to have greater power over them. And in those who knew in the novel I wrote, um, it's a very divided country. And so although the two activists um, uh, that are sort of at the center of the novel and, and their college years are sort of fighting on the same side, that one of them comes from a family that supported the regime. And so she has this collective complicity and um, feels a great sense of guilt about her family's role in, in, in the regime. And so um, the boyfriend who assaults her uses her her shame and her guilt about her family, um, sort of almost like the leg and the um, you know the wooden leg and the Flannery O'Connor yeah. story as a way to shame her and to silence her, and that she knows that she will be made a pariah if she speaks up because he will um, you know just traffic and all of these um, you know stereotypes that, that that come of anyone who comes from a family like that. But she didn't. She wasn't asked. She didn't ask to be born in that family, and she has denounced her family's politics and risked her life to do otherwise in the novel. But she's still held accountable for um, the decisions of. Her, her grandparents. So in, that's what he leverages for her silence. And so I think revisiting the Flannery O'Connor story, I was just thinking about how predators leverage a vulnerability that way. Um, and I think it's often in fiction, it's shown how subtly, because it's a very nuanced thing to le- leverage shame that way. I wondered if maybe we're going to have you read from the new book um, and talk about it. But I also wondered if maybe real quickly, you should just summarize and tell the listeners about good country people, like what happens in it, in, in the off chance that they haven't read this story, which they should have and should immediately go read if they haven't. <laughs> well, you can find it online. Um, so it's, it's readily available to read. And uh, I think it's seen as this sort of canonical story of, of you know, of Flannery O'Connor's and also of our literature. And yet I don't think we really talk about it in the context of both you know, um, you know, assault and leveraging vulnerability because I mean, she does seduce the Bible salesman. She goes willingly, but it doesn't mean that there wasn't something that happened there that was an abuse of power. They end up um, in this barn, he, right? It's like in the right, hayloft. and he takes her leg. So she willingly goes on a walk with the Bible salesman, and she willingly leads him to a barn. But that, but what happens after that? He he sort of coaxes her and shames her into um, taking off her wooden leg, which um, after what goes unsaid after that, he pushes the leg out of her reach so she can't reach her own leg. And um, toward the end of the story, because this is in the essay, so it's not a spoiler, he admits that, um, you know, not only is he taking her leg, he once stole a woman's 
you know, glass eye too. So this is a man who is collecting women's body parts. I mean, there's nothing that's more of like an objective correlative, as we say in poetry, you know, with yeah. an object that correlates to somebody's, um, to an emotion. And I think that actually, you know, predatorial behavior toward women and then literally making off of their body parts is kind <laughs> of, you know, makes manifest um, that power imbalance and you to, make an in-, in a really gross aspect. You make this interesting comparison between Kavanaugh's performance of a, of a nice guy at the hearings and the way that the uh, minister, uh, the Bible salesman first appears in the story, you know, that he seems to be this good country people, you know, of the, of the, of the title. And then, but later his Bible has in it, what, a condom, if I'm remembering right, and, and a flask. And a right? flask, <laughs> yes. Like, and so good that's country what the, people. That feels like what, what, Joe, what Brett Kavanaugh's Bible would have in it eventually, you know. Back I think it would have probably a multiple flasks. Yeah. I think one flask would be sort of surprising, in yeah. fact. And, you know, if he even has a condom, that would be great. But I think <laughs> that, um, you know, <laughs> but but that, there was like when I was watching him, I think that was like the sort of what brought this story to mind. And, and to some degree was that he starts out in this sort of pious voice. He evokes the prayers at dinner. You know, he's trying to make himself to be this, you know, hardworking guy who had no context getting into Yale when actually he was like legacy admission, you know, so it's all lies. And um, the Bible salesman also walks in the doors if he's this pious religious man. And then it turns out that he's just like this absolutely nasty creature. So um, I think, you know, just watching how this performance falls apart, both in the Kavanaugh trial and also in the story and what's really behind the good country folk performance is that there was an eerie parallel there for sure. Uh, in your essay, you also mentioned June Jordan, who I love. Oh, my gosh. And you mentioned Poem About My Rights, which was published in 1980. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about why that poem is still so relevant for us now, almost 40 years after it was published. Yeah, I was a huge June Jordan fan in college and remain so. And I often teach, um, you know, she has this terrific book of essays called Some of Us Did Not Die. And there's an essay in it about Anita Hill. So I think because of that essay, I was drawn back to June Jordan's essays, which got me thinking about this poem. And one of the things that... um, I, that really resonated with me reading this poem and, and more so going back to it and thinking all these comments, you know, was it Lindsey Graham who said that Christine Blasey Ford was pleasing to look at, like she's being objectified even when she was giving testimony by people who are going to be able to vote on, um, you know, her integrity. And in June Jordan's poem, she says, you know, I can't go out without changing my clothes, my shoes, my body, posture, my gender, identity, my age, my status. And this sense of self-corrective where you cannot go out on the street, you cannot go almost anywhere without feeling that you have to anticipate um, the lack of impulse control of other people and that you will be held responsible for the lack of impulse control of others. And um, so I think that, you know, when I, after going back to June Jordan's Anita Hill essay and then going back to this poem, I saw how, as you said, Sugi, this is from 40 years ago and nothing has changed. And it just, you know, on one hand, I think that there's a despair and recognizing the lack of progress. But then there's also the consolation of reading this poem and how how precisely she she reflects that problem. It's so interesting the way that um, it seems like a lot of the work of fiction in analyzing this kind of trauma is about complicating signifiers of goodness. I mean, I think about 
um, you know, I grew up, I grew up in Bethesda where, um, where Brett Kavanaugh is from and side note, went to my 20th high school reunion there last weekend. And, um, and there are these sort of, right, like there's the Bible, there's, um, you know, I write about sexual violence and I'm often writing about it in, in, in the space of militarization. So sort of authority and power being so much a part of it. And in the essay, you also, um, you mentioned Shirley Jackson and her novel, Hengzaman, and I'm wondering if, if you can talk about the strategies that you see writers employ to, t- to try to represent, explore, or process the effects of sexual violence. Because I think, you know, as someone who writes about it, like one of the things I'm worried about always is kind of, you know, how do you depict pain without fetishizing it? Yeah. Or, you know, the sort of, um, of course, like the pain of others, et cetera, et cetera. And like, you know, I think about The Bluest Eye and Toni Morrison. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think what both of these stories do, do that I also sort of tried to do in Those Who Knew is that you don't want to do sort of like, you know, um, sexual violence porn where you are sort of uh, almost eroticizing it in a way that is really egregiously problematic. And so I think that the silence, if you as a reader are attuned to it, um, it, it, it forces you into the story. It forces you to understand what's going unsaid. And I think that what these stories do, which also happened in, in um, Dr. Christine Blasey Ford's testimony, was that she gave primacy to these details that were seared into her memory. And I think, you know, the placement of things in the room. And I think that that happens, you know, in Hingsman, where she remembers the, gla- the grass underneath her. Yeah. And she remembers, um, you know, s- certain aspects of the trees and the nodding heads and how, you know, when, when things happen to the body, I think it's often sensorial and bodily memories. And that if you want to convey what it is about trauma that stays in the body, it is that bodily memory of it. Uh, so much of what you're saying about bodily memory is reminding me of, you know, Christine Blasey Ford in her testimony. She she said this phrase, which I think a lot of writers are any glom- kind of glommed onto, and, and so did I, you know, indelible in the hippocampus is the laughter. And I saw people repeating that to each other, almost like this incantation, like a, like a reiteration of things that had happened to an us, um, like a collective, there was this sort of collective notion that um, she had said, she had articulated so precisely this, her own experience in these, in these clinical terms, but there was also something about the language and the, that detail that stuck with so many people and particularly writers, I thought. Um, And the way that, I mean, it was almost a, like it was a literary phrase at the same time that it was a, she was offering legal testimony. Yes. And I think that that is, um, that, that indelibility of the sensory memory of the laughter, the things you hear that you touch, that you smell, that, that when something happens to your body, that those are, that they are indelible. And I think that what's so powerful about Natalie, who's the college freshman, um, at the center of Hengsaban and also with, um, Holga, who's originally named Joy in um, the Flannery O'Connor story, is that they um, that the that both authors in those stories give primacy to those sensory experiences to say that these stories are not about you know eroticizing this violence. They are about um, conveying to the reader what um, what happens to that trauma in the body. One last thing that I wanted to mention about this, since we're talking about these comparisons that you draw so profitably between these works of fiction and and what happened with the Kavanaugh hearings, is like 
One thing that I heard repeated so often, people would say, if this guy was so nice when I met him, why? how could he possibly be a bad guy in another circumstance? And I'm like, have you never, ever read any novels, like even one book? Do you, you know, I mean, yeah. this is what always happens. It, 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 this is a truth of human nature. And I don't understand why people are unable to accept that as a truth of human nature. Yeah, I think what's insidious about it, too, is that we're currently living in a time when there is a profound disjunct between public persona and private life. You know, it's it's at a drastic disjunct right now. And the way people present online has nothing to do with what they're living. Right. And to think that anyone would still want to sort of peddle in some sort of forced um, naivete that the way you present to others, whether in person or on social media, and how that could be so completely at odds with how you behave in your household or to your neighbor or anywhere, you know, that, that, that I think we're really beyond that kind of naivete. So anyone who's even saying that, you know that there's, there's some sort of faux uh, performance even to that statement. I think that there's also kind of a majoritarian American failure to deal with collective responsibility, which is enshrined in the founding documents. I mean, there's all of these notions of individual empowerment and individual um, seeking of, you know, happiness, et cetera, et cetera. There's not much uh, interest or acknowledgement of the collective ways in which we seek happiness, the, the ways in which our happiness is a collective responsibility, the ways in which our atmosphere, our social lives, our society is bound together by, as we've seen Trump disrupt this custom, like custom and, and decency, which is a kind of common contract, which can so easily be violated. And like the the ways in which um, I think like, you know, whiteness, maleness, other kinds of privileged identities have not necessarily been engaged in a conversation about collective responsibility, the way in well, which I, structures, yeah. the way in which structures have enabled, right, you know, I come from Bethesda and um, like, it's been really interesting for me to think about, and like, God, I use the word interesting so much as a euphemism, but like, you know, to think about, you know, I came out of a town where, um, like you can do a control find and like all the episodes of fiction, nonfiction, where I said things were interesting, but like, you know, to like, um, think about the way in which like the community in which I grew up was like trafficked in privilege and, um, diplomatic niceties and private schools. And, you know, I went to a public school, but still, you know, like wealth and um, kind of people knowing people in certain ways and some people being excluded from those things. And all of that makes Brett Kavanaugh possible, even though like I grew up in a community of people who I thought of as like I think of as kind and smart. But they also made like this town also made this possible, which is appalling to me. Yeah. It is. And I think, you know, it's easier to see those things in retrospect, how they can kind of happen simultaneously. My friend Bernice Young wrote a book that came out this past year called In a Day's Work, where she talks about, um, you know, sexual assault with um, America's most vulnerable workers who are in the domestic service industry or in the ag agricultural industry and who are undocumented. And she points out in the book that the people who made laws regarding, regarding assault and how much hinges on, instead of on prevention, but on claims from the victim, it were made by people who were never the ones being assaulted, that the laws were made by men who were looking out for other men. And so that these laws were made by the people who were thinking about 
you know, perhaps being getting the accusation and not about protecting victims of assault. So as you said, when you think about these issues of sort of like maleness, you think and not only the founding fathers, but like so many laws that have been made since then yeah. regarding assault and house process. And that is certainly true, you know, of all over the world is that the, this isn't just a, a problem in our country, is that so many laws and so much of the approach regarding assault and how it's handled was that it, it's 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 that the laws and the way that are the judgments are made by people who were not the most vulnerable in terms of being victims so it would be a shame if we went any further without hearing you read from your novel i think oh, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um so rebecca traster has said that in those who knew you write with quote acuity and depth about questions of silence power and complicity and another reviewer praises the way you quote explore the cost of speaking up versus the cost of staying silent. And this also just, of course, that your novel is incredibly timely and prescient, even though at the same time, women's stories have been routinely delegitimized and swept under the rug. And that also isn't, you know, sort of as evergreen, unfortunately. Um, can you talk a little bit about the novel and set up a, maybe set up a passage and, and read a passage for us? Yeah, the novel is about um, a powerful senator, and but he is seen as a victim of this U.S.-supported regime. And I wanted to write a little bit about how you can be both a victim and a predator, and, and that, that although it's hard to grapple with that dissonance, that you, there's no reason, you know, just because you were a victim does not mean you don't victimize somebody else. And how often that's hard for the public to sort of hold those two things at once. And um, so this, his name is Victor. It's in an unnamed island where there was a U.S. supported regime. And I think that looking back, I chose to do that because I thought I would be feel freer as a writer um, to talk about these issues if I could talk about them sort of not in my own country. And I started the book four years ago. So, um, you know, the, 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 the way it's coincided in the most disturbing way with things actually happening in our country right now um, really was startling for me because one of the things that led to the novel was um, this case in Stoibenville, Ohio, which is about an hour or so from where I, I grew up in Western Pennsylvania, of a football coach who was present at a rape and did nothing. He didn't intervene. And um, just thinking about you know, how somebody in a position of power who is present for a crime and does nothing. And I was just thinking about those issues of complicity, which um, got me thinking about how that, how that would play out in the story and how complicity makes somebody stay silent and a sense of complicity, you know, maybe leads to um, other people forcing others into silence out of a sense of collective guilt. So I, had, I, I really wanted to write this novel about collective complicity, but also power imbalances both between countries and between people, because I think they're connected. And I wanted to see if in a novel I could figure out how to sort of show how those imbalances um, sort of feed each other. I'm, I'm reading from sort of toward the beginning of the book, and one of the protagonists, her name is Lena, and she would like to speak out about the senator who um, assaulted her when he was her boyfriend in college uh, because there's now another crime and somebody else's life at stake. And her friend is convincing her to stay silent. So that's what's happening in, in this scene. Um, and her friend says to her, you know, Victor will use your grandfather to discredit anything you claim, Olga told her. I bet he'll go after your whole family, Lena. He'll get his minions calling for a boycott of every Jew's coming out of your family's factory. 
Olga motioned for the joint and Lena wordlessly returned to her. Of course, Victor would do that. She had confessed her grandfather's hiring practices to him as if he were the head priest in the Church of Reprehensible Complicity. With a quiet huff of defeat, Lena looked down at the white pulse line across her chest, how precisely the zigzag fell at the rise of her breasts, how perfectly her body complied with the design. Lena let her head fall back. Even if she had more evidence than a sweater sent from the afterlife, her accusations about Victor would lead to nothing. No one would take her claims seriously. She'd be dismissed on the radio as some bitter ex-girlfriend who'd grown up with maids tying her shoes, a woman raised in one of those sickening families that still wouldn't use the word regime. When she'd ranted on the phone with Olga, it had felt possible to postpone the consideration of how easily Victor would make her a pariah. With his cult status on campus, he'd have no problem getting her fired. Her family could lose the factory. They might even have to leave the island. Victor wouldn't just burn up her life. He'd incinerate that of her brothers and their wives, her nephews and little niece who just started school. She squinted up at the water spots extending across the ceiling, following the edge of the largest one, its faint yet relentless advance above her head. That is terrific. It is impossible for me, not to think about uh, Dr. Ford when you're reading yeah. that, you know. Uh, I know you said that you started it four years ago. Um, I know that, like, I remember that our second episode of the podcast, I think, was done on the Sunday that we recorded on the Sunday that the Me Too uh, movement began sort of on Facebook and we were talking about it. So that was a year ago, roughly. That would have, you would have probably already been done with the book by then. Um, but were there things happening in the culture during the writing period that influenced uh, the way the manuscript came out or the way you thought about what you were writing about? Absolutely. I think right after the 2016 election, I was working on the last third of this novel, and I um, started to fantasize about Olga, who is sort of, I see as kind of the moral center of the novel. She um, starts thinking about a third act and thinking about taking a step forward in the politics of her country. And I think that my fantasy of having my character step forward into politics and take on, put her name on a ballot was happening with people all over the country. And then all these women and underrepresented groups were putting their names down on the ballot. So I think my reaction to the 2016 election was to sort of make that manifest in a book um, because that's, I guess, what writers do. And at the same time, other people were actually doing it. They were putting their name on, on the ballot, but that didn't come out right away. So it was, it was, it was curious that what I, my, my, you know, my private fantasies of saying there are these people who in the country who um, have a collective memory and, and know the changes that need to happen for social progress to happen, they were actually putting their names on ballots while I was creating a character, putting her name down on the ballot. Mm. So that was um, kind of beautiful to see. I mean, regardless of how many people end up in office, I think it's a change that will continue to happen. So in your Paris Review essay, you suggest that there's a big difference between actual silence and behavior that presents to others as silence, is how you phrased it, and which implies that one of the problems when it comes to attending to the needs of survivors is the way other people ignore efforts to make oneself heard. What do you think people can do to try to sensitize themselves to the kinds of silence imposed on people who have experienced some sort of trauma? I hope that the conversation we're happening now, as disturbing as the as the end result was, um, 
is is that we will be more attuned and that teachers will be more attuned to, to, to hopefully pointing out these silences and these stories and revisiting stories like Flannery O'Connor's novel and, you know, revisiting novels like, you know, um, Beloved and revisiting novels like Alice Walker's The Color Purple. You know, I think that there's a number, number of books that we can go back and say, well, why is it that the protagonist in The Color Purple is writing letters to God? It's because she feels so silenced that she has to write to someone who can't respond. So I think these books are there. It's just a question of um, creating a conversation around them where we can talk about the silencing. There was a New York Times article by Alexandra Alter uh, recently called How Feminist Dystopian Fiction is Channeling Women's Anger and Anxiety. And your book was... Uh, mentioned in there along with work by people like Margaret Atwood and Ursula K. Le Guin and Octavia Butler. Um, I wondered how you see your novel in relationship to precedents like these and what for you makes dystopian fiction an effective form of social critique or social resistance. Uh, thank you for asking about that. I think the reason I wanted to place this novel on an unnamed island was that you can look at patterns and how um, patterns in terms of power imbalances have played out in different countries um, all over the world and, you know, for, for many, many years. So when people kept saying to me, oh, it's so uncanny. And I was like, well, this isn't a new problem. <laughs> you know, like these power imbalances of, you know, just, you know, manifest um, in every country's history all over the globe. And so I was hoping that by setting it in this country where you could sort of intuit that it's, um, you know, the relationship to the U.S. and the novel, but that you could bring your knowledge to it of places maybe where you've lived or where you've traveled as a reader. And so that I think that then when you when you do dystopian fiction and, and you don't have certain markers in it, it allows the reader to sort of um, bring more of their life experience into the book and um, connect with it in a way that if the book is just realistic fiction, it doesn't necessarily open itself up and maybe as an expanse, as expansive of a way. Are those books part of your like personal canon? I mean, those are those writers that were important to you, the ones that I listed there, or maybe others that Alexandra talks about in that article? Yes, I'm a huge Angela Carter fan, in part because um, she's also willing to have fun. I mean, her books are just total badassery, but they're also <laughs> incredibly sassy and joyful. And I, I think for me, that's really important, too, because I think if you're not open to joy and you don't, as my characters do, put on beards and invent revolutions, then you can't go out on the street and stay true to your convictions when things are really hard. And um, the thing that I think I really connect to with um, Margaret Atwood is that she came to fiction from poetry. And I think sometimes for people forget that Margaret Atwood's poems are excellent. And I have all eight volumes of them. Oh. Um, and so, <laughs> you know, like I, I, I still go back to Margaret Atwood's, Atwood's poems. And she, is, she has, I think maybe less so now, but I, between novels, continue to write some poems. And so I, she's sort of in my, um, you know, group of writers who began in poetry and then moved from poetry into fiction, which I also did. Have you been watching The Handmaid's Tale? Yes, I have watched The Handmaid's Tale. Have you? I started watching it, and then um, I was watching it with someone who I think did not want to go on watching it, and I couldn't quite bring myself to continue watching it alone, and I used to teach that book. And I remember reading um, some commentary also about the inclusion of sexual assault in um, in the film, in the in the TV version of, um, of the book, and that being that being really like one of the things that, you know, the translation from literature to 
television. It's also just now that so much of the time, like people, people go to watch TV series from books they love, but also people go back and read books from seeing TV series and being captured by them. And there's such striking differences in that particular season. And actually one of the differences is the depiction of sexual assault. Um, so I was just curious as to whether you had any thoughts. Yeah, I watched the first season and then I, I, I felt like it was exciting to see because it was an important book to me, but I also felt after the first season, I was like, okay, I got to see, you know, what happened with the adaptation, but that I also just wanted to sort of inhabit the experience of that book for what it meant to me as a reader and imagining it in my own mind. So yes, I also sort of could not make it past one season. I was so glad I got to see one season, but that was, I agree enough. So... (laughs) Thanks so much again for joining us, Idra. We really appreciate your taking the time to talk with us about this and about your book. And it's wonderful to hear that section of your book. We encourage our listeners to keep an eye out for it. And it's coming soon. November 6th, I think, is the pub date for those who knew. So, you know, time to pre-order. Thank you very much for having me on the podcast. Thanks so much. Esme Weijin Wang is a novelist and essayist. Her debut novel, The Border of Paradise, was called a best book of 2016 by NPR and one of the 25 best novels of 2016 by Electric Literature. She was named by one uh, as one of the best young American novelists in 2017 by Granta, won the Whiting Award in 2018, and is the recipient of the Grey Wolf Nonfiction Prize for her forthcoming essay collection, The Collected Schizophrenias. Born in the Midwest to Taiwanese parents, she lives in San Francisco and can be found at EsmeWang.com and on Twitter at EsmeWang. Esme, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. It's so great to have you here. Um, When we were talking about writers and mental health just several weeks ago, we immediately thought of the generous support you've offered other writers and, of course, of the, skele- the Collected Schizophrenias, which is coming out in February, which I'm so looking forward to reading. Congratulations on winning the Grey Wolf Nonfiction Prize, um, which is, I think, has produced some books that I really love. Can you tell us a little bit about how you started writing The Collected Schizophrenias? Yeah, of course. So, well, first of all, thank you. Um, I never anticipated that I'd end up writing nonfiction, actually, especially when I first met you at the University of Michigan MFA program when I was studying fiction. I first started trying to write essays when my debut novel, The Border of Paradise, was having trouble selling. I feel like this is kind of a story that I tell a lot lately, but it was rejected 41 times and that took quite a while um, getting all of those rejections. I didn't feel like I could start working on new fiction until I knew what was going to happen to that first book. So I started writing essays and they all ended up being about mental illness, particularly my experiences with schizoaffective disorder, which I was being diagnosed with around that time in my life. And then I sent a hundred pages of those essays to the Grey Wolf Nonfiction Prize. And that's the long story short of how the collective schizophrenia came to be. Uh, We are hugely excited for it to come out and we were wondering if we could hear a preview of it. For sure. I'd be honored to. So I'll be reading from the first published essay from the collection called Perdition Days. It originally appeared in The Toast and is about my experience living with a rare delusion. I write this while experiencing a strain of psychosis known as Guitard's delusion, in which the patient believes that they are dead. What the writer's confused state means is not beside the point because it is the point. I'm in here somewhere, cogito ergo sum, 
In October 2013, I attended a speaker's training at the Mental Health Association of San Francisco. As a new hire at the Bureau, I would begin in 2014 to deliver anti-stigma talks at schools, government agencies, and other organizations around the city. Part of this training included a lesson on appropriate language usage to say, person with bipolar disorder, or person living with bipolar disorder, or person with a diagnosis of bipolar disorder, instead of bipolar as a predicate nominative. We speakers were told that we are not our diseases. We are instead individuals with disorders and malfunctions. Our conditions lie over us like smallpox blankets. We are one thing and the illness is another. I had endured my longest period of psychosis earlier that year from February through August. And after trying every atypical, that is new generation antipsychotic on the market, I began taking Haldol, a vintage antipsychotic, which cleared my delusions until November 4th. On that morning, I looked at the antique sewing table in my office, seeing redwood without totally seeing it and felt the old anxiety of unreality. The full delusion would not come until a day later, but I knew what this meant. The past few weeks had not sim been simply feeling scattered, as I repeatedly told others, but had been pre-psychosis signals and warnings. Thank you so much, Esme. It's wonderful to hear you read that essay. I remember it coming out and how powerful it is. And the book comes out on February 5th. In your novel, the Border of Paradise also takes mental health on really directly. It seems to me like, I mean, it's one thing to have mental health challenges and another to write about them. And there's still, you know, you were mentioning giving anti-stigma talks. And I'm wondering how you experience the transition between, you know, having a period, having a delusion and then writing about it and then that being published. How did you get through that? Yeah, so... The first major step I took into deciding that I would be more open about my experiences with mental illness actually began with blogging. I've had different uh, different personal blogs here and there, um, but I avoided writing about mental illness actually until I was hired at a startup company in San Francisco. I think one of the main reasons I hadn't been writing about it was that I previously been afraid of making myself unhirable. And then once I found a steady job, which I kept until I became much too sick to continue, I realized that there was going to be no such thing as a perfect time to speak out about mental health and its related stigma. And so I started to come out about it online. And that was what led to writing the essays. You know, I have, I, when I talk, or I've, I spoke earlier in the podcast when Suki and I were chatting at the beginning about having anxiety uh, attacks after I came back from Iraq and, um, you know, how helpful therapy was for me and just learning that this was, a, you know, a thing that I had. It wasn't, you know, it was something that could be treated, that you could talk about, you need to think about, that other people had had, that other people had dealt with. Um, and that was so incredibly important for me. I wonder, how do you talk about mental health in the classroom? I'd be curious to hear, as may hear you answer this first, since I know you teach in a very different capacity than I do. And I think um, with a different sense of space with your students, I think I am often confronted with questions like, 
you know, do you believe in content warnings or trigger warnings, for example? Um, how are you considerate of different kinds of material with your students? If your students need space or some sort of accommodation, how can you encourage your students to be um, generous with themselves, uh, but also to believe that they can do as much as they want? And I don't know, I think on some level, I just want my students to know I'm cheering for them. Like, what is the right moment to say to a student, like, you know, you can, there's a, there, you know, these, these, these services are available. There's a counseling center at my university. Here are things you can do, you know, when, when is the right person time to say that? Or is it never the right time? I, I always am curious about that because you, you see stuff in students' work, you see students say things to you. You wonder like, how do, how, what is the best way as a teacher to interact with these students? Cause I think this is a fairly common thing for students. I actually have uh an essay in the collection called Yale Will Not Save You. And a lot of it is about my experience at Yale and how I ended up leaving that school. Um, but a lot of it also has to do with the different ways in which colleges and universities treat students with mental illnesses and mental health difficulties. And mm -hmm. where I haven't spent a lot of time in academia in terms of teaching, I do remember, and I include in the essay, this experience I had when I was at Michigan and we were, you know, uh, graduate student instructors and we were getting our teacher training. It was, a, I think, a one or two day thing. And one of the things the main instructors of that, that session told us was to not believe students who said they were having depression because any student could pretend they had depression. Oh my goodness. And, and I brought, yeah, and I found it bewildering. I thought it was awful. I talked to other students about it. And then I mentioned this cause I, I was a visiting writer at Michigan uh, just this past month. And I mentioned this memory of that experience to uh, my former thesis advisor. And he was saying like, oh no, like a lot has changed in terms of the resources we have now. And we would never say that to a student now. We have a lot of things in place. But I think that kind of speaks to how a lot of colleges and universities don't have, we don't tend to have these best practices in place. Uh, universally or through all um, colleges and universities. So some might be really good at that kind of stuff. When I went to Stanford, they approached me right away and said, do you want to be considered a student with a disability? Because they knew I had bipolar disorder or what was then diagnosed as bipolar disorder. Um, but uh, I had a much different experience at Yale. And, and so I think that's something that is important to recognize as well. Yeah, I mean, I was an undergraduate at Harvard, and I remember there was a period of time when I, I did have significant depression, and I wrote to a residential college dean about it, and he basically wrote me, the short version was kind of like, buck up and carry on, and I couldn't buck up, um, and I was... <laughs> I, I could not. It was not possible. And not bucking up today, sir. Not, no, there was no there was no chinning up. There was no chin up. And um, he didn't even meet with me. He just emailed me back. He didn't try to see me or anything. And it was pretty appalling. Um, and I think that the culture there is also improved, although I can't say the degree to which that's happened. There was something called the Bureau of Study Council where you could go and find like counseling help. I think one of the other challenges is even if there are best practices, 
a lot of places, you know, I have a mental health statement on my syllabus, as um, many instructors here do, I think. And but also, am I confident that if I direct if I can suggest a student, suggest to a student that they go to counseling, that they're actually counselors available? It's so hard for people to pick up the phone. And then if what they get is that, you know, there are no the therapist you want is not taking new patients or, um, you know, there's no appointments available for a month. Uh, to understand and assess different situations and their urgency is is difficult. And, you know, I was classified as a student with a disability for a long time because of a physical injury. And I find also that students with uh, mental health challenges sometimes have a hard time considering themselves in that situation. They'll sort of be like, oh, you know, something happened that was a catalyst. And so I'm having a bad fall, but I'm not a person with a disability in this way. And I'll sort of be like, you know, it could be, it it might be temporary, but you might still need an accommodation. And I'm better able to help you if you go in and maybe have an academic advocate who can look at your classes with you and talk to you about this and help you consider how you might communicate with your instructors. So I try to encourage students to do that, but I really wish schools had more resources. So as May, you mentioned very swiftly, um, and just a little bit of context for our readers who wouldn't necessarily know this, we met at Michigan when you were a postgraduate, uh, a post-MFA fellow there and I had just started teaching there and you had been a graduate student instructor there, as you said. And did you um, did you have any experience with there in some schools? I'm trying to remember what it was in Michigan, but there are protocols for sort of if a student, for example, turns in material that is disturbing. What do you do? Yeah, yeah, uh, that's what I want to know. That was actually not something that was covered in our one day, I think one day session about what to do uh, as a graduate student instructor. I remember having a lot of students who were coming to me saying, I'm sorry, I didn't come last week. I was in the psychiatric hospital or, you know, just things like that. And I, yeah, I felt really confused. I'm finding it really fascinating that the two of you are talking about things like, oh, I wish we had more resources because the conversations that were happening when I was an undergraduate and dealing with different mental health issues was be very careful if you go and seek out those resources because they might involuntarily commit you and they might kick you out, mm. um, which was a which is still a thing that happens. I mean, I uh, still get emails and messages from people who at Yale or at other schools are not allowed to come back at least for a year or more because they're not considered fit to return or not in good shape. I mean, I'm just going to try to be as honest about this as possible. Like, if you're seeing something in, a, in work, if a student, students write in, you know, people write in persona, we talk about it all the time, but there are a lot of times students are not writing in persona, especially if they're, you know, early writers, you know, and, and you're like, uh, this person is describing suicidal ideation, you know, and it, and mm-hmm. it seems troubling. And how do I address that as a teacher? I, uh, you know, is it if I write a note to them and say, hey, you know, we could talk about this or if you want to go to there's these counseling services available. Am I going to offend them? I think there are many students also in a Midwestern school like this who don't know that therapy is in, is something like they don't come out of a family that has ever considered that. Right. I didn't, right? You would get prayed for, maybe, but that's not, yeah. you know. And so there's this big gap, and it's really hard to bridge. And I'm looking for suggestions of like, you know, what works best in those situations. Do you have any suggestions in that way? 
Oh, I just want to insert there too. It's not, you know, the Midwestern thing I think makes a lot of sense. And also if you're from a culture as I did, um, you know, my parents are immigrants, a culture where therapy is not a thing or, you know, it's a very shameful thing um, that, that can also be an issue. Absolutely. Yeah. I think there's a lot of stigma around this in various South Asian communities for sure. And I think that so far, I mean, the strategy that I've sometimes used, although I'm a little troubled that this is even, I don't think that this would be my only recourse, is that when there are students that I want, um, when I want my students to be aware of resources on campus, whether they're disability accommodations or something else, um, one way that I try to normalize them is by indicating that, you know, I was a student who used disability accommodations. You know, if you uh, need disability accommodations, you know, I went through that and it's important to me that you and your education are supported here. And so I will work with you as best I can to do that. Um, and kind of my door is open. But I, I also think like I actually um, like I shouldn't have to do it that way and would prefer some other mode. But that I think is also, I don't know, a way in which I've tried to make myself approachable on that count. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. There's a certain mythology around creative writing and mental illness, uh, some pervasive notion that creativity and suffering and creativity and mental illness are inextricably connected. Uh, I wanted to know what, what you thought about that, Esme, and, and did that have any effect on you as an emerging writer? I think that such mythology had way more of an effect on me when I was a teenager. Yeah. By the time I was uh, really suffering with mental illness, I knew that my creative work was being stifled and not spurred on by illness. I think that Perdition Days actually is a bit of an exception to that because I started writing that essay when I was experiencing the delusion. It was a way for me to kind of write my way through the story. But for the most part, being sick has not been helpful to my creativity. Did you- so when people say to you, you know, if you were talking to someone, say, for example, who's having mental health issues and they say, you know, if I seek out help, you know, will my voice change or will like in what ways might my character, the, the essence of my work change? What do you say to them? I would I think for the most part, I would ask is are you is your writing really being served by the, the suffering you're going through? Like, is is your writing being served by lying in bed, being unable to move for, you know, up to 18 hours or more a day or being so manic that you're spending all your time buying snake bite kits, you know, like, (laughs) I I mean, I I would, I wouldn't be quite that harsh about it, but I mean, just it's, I think there are, it it reaches a point where it stops being able to be glamorized and is just getting in the way of things. I mean, I think there's also the, the possibility and the likelihood that past experiences of suffering can be used later. I mean, there's that, um, I don't know who said this quote, uh, but like uh, the suffering will be used to of you someday or whatever that quote is. Um, Was that, that, uh, there's that Hemingway quote about being broken and then stronger in the broken places. Uh, maybe that is yeah. that the enough? Yeah. No, but there there are quite a few. Yeah, quotes it's in that vein. That, yeah, in that vein. Yeah. So, you know, and then once you're you're you hopefully can seek help and be able to function. Um, I don't know. I honestly, I don't really know that many people who have gone through really even moderate to severe mental illness and find that 
they work better when they're really struggling. I, I find it much more common that they find it difficult to do any writing at all. Sure. I guess I'm thinking in some ways of, um, you know, Leslie Jameson, who also won the Grey Wolf Nonfiction Prize and who recently, um, you know, was writing about alcoholism and the recovering, right. um, get, gets a little bit at the, the notion of the cultural tropes of the writer, you know, alcoholism, suffering, um, instability. And I just kind of remember this rhetoric around that I would hear some of my friends toss around when I was in grad school, kind of like, well, that's just the way that that poets are, you know, for example, he was often poets. Um, and right. Well, there's Robert Lowell. There's the, you know, there's the mythology around. John Vincent Barryman. Van Gogh. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And I just sort of, I was, I was uncomfortable with that rhetoric, but also I think sometimes didn't know what to say. Like, Sylvia sort of, Plath. Right. Exactly. Like, is that just the way that writers are right? Like that was the kind of, um, that was the line. And I think that I probably still have friends I disagree with about that. Um, well, first of all, I, I haven't quite finished reading The Recovering yet, but I think that Leslie does quite a good job of pushing against those. She does. She does. Tropes. And, you know, especially as someone who used to see things that way, she's particularly good at at doing that. Um, and I, I don't know. I just feel like I would much rather, I don't know, I, I might even say that I would much rather just not be able to write, but I, I, I don't even see it that way, though. I don't see them as mutually exclusive. Right. Um, and I think something that I hear much more frequently is, oh, taking medication is something that, like, cognitively numbs me so that I'm not able to write anymore. And that I feel like, yeah, I, I can see how that would be a problem. Um, and for those people, I, I just hope that, you know, they're willing to try different medications or try different therapies, you know, maybe not medication, maybe medication isn't the particular thing that would work for them, but maybe uh, some cognitive behavioral therapy would be more helpful. Mm -hmm. I just, I just really think that it's, it's, I don't think that any level of suffering is worth Worth that, and also when you listed all of those writers that we all knew the names of, they did not particularly live very long. <laughs> didn't go or, very well. You know, it didn't go very well for them. Yeah. Right. So you've spoken about living with both late stage Lyme disease and schizoaffective disorder, and you've made increased space for a community that, as you term it, is ambitious. Um, but living with limitations, and you offer other writers a huge amount of material to support creativity and creative work. From kind of e-courses to a newsletter to ebooks, and some of that material you are putting up for free on your website. By the way, and her so, website makes me incredibly jealous and feels like <laughs> makes me feel like my website just pathetic. <laughs> that's um, so really. That's so funny because like, oh my, my website God. is currently being redesigned. It's it's a brand new website is coming toward the end of the month yeah. or in November. <laughs> I, I'm not going to be able to look at it. I'm afraid. <laughs> EsmeWang.com, listeners, EsmeWang.com. Um, I mean, I think, you know, you're hugely prolific. And, and so I'm really interested to talk to you about how you manage time while acknowledging boundaries and limitations and how it's affected your writing life to be connected to others in this way and how you found balance. I always find it so funny to think of myself as hugely prolific or to hear other people even use that word to describe me because I'm always struggling against a self-perception of myself as lazy. And that's something that I 
talk to a lot with those these communities of people who are ambitious but are dealing with limitations, whether that's chronic illness or mental illness. And so some of the, the things I've written are uh, – really, I think, quite popular piece for L.com about um, about being uh, ambitious and wanting to be productive, but also worrying that you're lazy or like I'm chronically ill and afraid of being lazy is the title of, that they came up with, I think. Um, and I, I love the community that I've helped create and I love the business that I've built, but it is truly difficult for me to manage my own time. And especially because I'm dealing with a variety of chronic illnesses. And so to say that I have got this in the bag or that I know exactly what I'm doing is very untrue. I I think that's in part why I love to create these resources for people that I see in the same position as me or in a position a couple of years behind where I am now. So, I mean, I just bought four books this week about time management. So, um, speaking of uh, that community, though, I want to be helpful and connected. And it's important for me to be able to make money, but I also want to work on my next book. So trying to find a balance is really an ongoing project. But there are things that I have learned. There are things that I've put together to try to help people based on things I've learned. There's this workshop that I've taught in a number of places, including conferences and retreats called Ass Kicking with Limitations. And it's it does have a lot to do with finding workarounds and defining limitations and defining success, redefining ambition, things like that. So it's an ongoing project for me. I'm always remind, having to remind myself that Laziness is a capitalist construct. And, <laughs> Yay! You're and, on the right podcast. <laughs> and that, and that, you know, I, I, I honestly don't think any of us are ever as lazy as we think we are or fear we are. Well, I think so. it's really interesting to bring up that that conjunction of being ambitious or ha- wanting to have a career and uh, and dealing with mental health. You know, because for me, when I was having. Uh, the serious issues with anxiety disorder, you know, it was what was triggering it was concerns about my career. You know, Mm -hmm. those things were really linked for me. Um, And I'm sure that's true for many people. Completely. I mean, I I came across this phrase that I now use, and I first saw it when Rachel Verona Coate wrote a piece about this, but it was productivity anxiety. Right. And I just I just glommed onto that because I was like, oh, my gosh, like I completely identify with this. Yeah. Yeah. And you were mentioning before, you know, being the child of immigrants, it's like the notion that, right. I mean, this is all tied up in the American dream as well. Like it that if you work hard enough, you will get the thing. And um, this is also an, this is also an Episcopalian idea. Suki, I just want you to know. <laughs> yeah. Episcopalian immigrant. Like, I mean, I just think, right, it's it's caught up in. I think I'm I'm interested in the like it's an unoriginal dilemma, but like, how do you talk about, how do you decide to try when you know that the world isn't fair? Um, and then who are you trying for? Um, and then you have to sort of like, you know, I don't know, reform your ego in some way and think about just trying for yourself and because you want to do good work. And that sounds, I'm perhaps that sounds overly idealistic, but, um, it's sort of a, a notion that I wrestle with a little bit. And then also just sort of the, the sense that if you, if you work hard enough, right, there's the implication there that, you have agency. And I think especially, and I'm sort of segueing to our next question here, but I think 
one of the things that a lot of people have struggled with in reading the news, maybe for like the past couple of years, has been a sense of lack of control over things that are happening that are traumatic. Um, and so I am especially curious, Esme, to hear you talk about how you read and process the news. Um, there was an article in the NYT recently about the trauma of of reading the news and, you know, for me, all of these things that we're talking about are linked. So when you talk about kind of self-care and defining limitations, how do you take care of yourself through these difficult political moments, which are also for so many people, difficult emotional moments? Yeah, I was thinking about that when Whitney mentioned uh, PTSD, which I am also diagnosed with. So this has actually been an ongoing discussion between me and my therapist, honestly. So take these last two weeks. So you've got the Kavanaugh Kavanaugh hearings happened. Dr. Ford testified. Kavanaugh was confirmed. Stephen Elliott, whom I was acquainted with as a college undergrad and in my early 20s, sued uh, Moira Donahan for her shitty media men spreadsheet. Um, And those are just two or three awful things in a sea of other awful things in the news. But I mentioned them specifically because they both have to do with sexual assault. And my complex PTSD is related to sexual assault and rape. And even though I made a certain self-protective decisions. So I I decided to read about the hearings instead of watching them. Um, I, you know, even even having made decisions such as that, I've been having more panic attacks. A couple of nights ago, I had a screaming nightmare that woke up my husband and my dog. Um, so what I don't do, like spending less time on Twitter, is as important as what I do. So spending time with my support system. I'm lucky enough to have my friends and family. Actually, on the day of the Kavanaugh hearings, some women from my writing group came over to vent and commiserate. And I also really recommend uh, to everyone, um, but especially to those close to me and to my community, doing seemingly really basic things, remembering to do those seemingly basic things like eating as well as I can and drinking water and getting as much sleep as I can. I briefly mentioned therapy, and that's been important for me, too. I have an online class, which you can find on my website, about restorative journaling through difficult times. And I just mentioned that because I created it based on my own journaling practice. So journaling has been really helpful to me. It's been helpful to uh, hundreds of other people, too, who have taken the class. And so, you know, I think this is such a big topic. And especially with the rate of the news. Another thing my therapist brought up was how, you know, back in like the during the world wars, like the the news would be coming you know, from the front. So it would take a while to get to you. Um, Whereas we're being overwhelmed by it all day, every day, depending on how much time you're spending online. Um, And that can be really, I I don't think that our systems, I don't think that we're physiologically built for that. So it's funny. I always think of the Trump administration um, and for a little bit more context here for our readers, um, Esme and I have a close mutual friend, um, who studied with Jim Shepard, and I think I first heard this term from Miriam, um, rate of revelation. And I always think of rate of revelation and Miriam when I think about the rate at which we now process the news, because Mm. it seems to me like we were on, I don't know, maybe like a, we were on a soap opera, something where things were repeated and we could process them, or maybe even on like a slow drama. And now all of a sudden, all of us are on scandal where the rate of revelation is really, really high. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. 
and just sort of the kinds of things that used to take place over a whole season arc now will take place in an episode. And so there's this sort of overwhelm of information. So rate of revelation is this this term coined by the the writer Jim Shepard, who's been on the show, actually, and is about, yeah, I, I mean, it's exactly what it sounds like, the, the rate of revelation, the, the pace at which information comes to you as a reader. And thinking about this craft term and how I now think about it just kind of operating in my life, mm-hmm. um, it's a little bit like, I mean, if you workshopped the world right now, you would be like, I'm sorry, your reader is just overwhelmed. <laughs> consider, consider really, consider dialing it back so that your reader can can appreciate the drama that you're generating and um it just has been really hard to to read the news and to think about um ways in which we can preserve ourselves whether it's yeah i mean reading being more i've tried to think really hard about being more in places with in real life than virtually um which i think is really i think they're both valuable but i think being with people in person is really different I write during the morning and then I'm done in the afternoon and I'm, I'm usually pretty low, but I run, you know, I do physical exercise I go, and I try to be outside and that usually takes about two hours. That's like a two hour block of day that I really try hard to preserve. And I feel like a, of all the things that I do is probably the most helpful. Yeah, that's been a struggle for me in part because um, as I've moved around the Midwest, I've increasingly developed health problems and so like sometimes even when i want to exercise I plus can't. you live in minnesota there's gonna be eight feet of snow there like tomorrow and you're done <laughs> there's no more running there's, for you pal there was there was snow day there was snow here on the way back i i was in wisconsin this weekend and as i drove back here i drove through wet snow and almost oh wept looking at the gray sky and as we approached minnesota there was a wedge of sun and i thought my I mean, sun lamp my sun lamp is in my office walking is good though <laughs> i mean you don't have to run walking is i like if i'm you know when i've had surgeries or something i walk instead it's still good yeah i mean i think like you know there's things i can do to to manage all of that different sort of stuff but i think in some cases like you know i was sick for something like the first eight months that i lived in minnesota and have some sort of rest undiagnosed respiratory problem um and so sometimes like cold air is like not a thing i can necessarily handle et cetera, et cetera. so like i have to come up with i don't know maybe i should get one of those machines where you like sit and move your arms um because i definitely notice the difference where when i can when i can exercise it's definitely much better but i think also right like there's kind of disability concerns there too. Yes, um, I completely agree with you. This has been something that I've been struggling with for a really long time, ever since I was, you know, developed and was diagnosed with late stage Lyme. Is just it's so hard to find methods of exercise when you are dealing with chronic pain and chronic fatigue, and when getting to the shower is difficult. Let alone, you know, going for a walk down the block. Um, some there are some great resources actually that I've discovered. Um, There is, uh, if you Google like yoga fibromyalgia or yoga uh, chronic fatigue syndrome, there are just things you can do in bed um, with just stretch, which just stretching is really lovely if that's possible. There, I I found that if you enter these communities, especially of chronic illness, there are workarounds that people have developed, and it's it, those can be really great. The sharing of resources and like the kind of community that you've created seems so valuable to people. Yeah, thank you. I would like to think so. <laughs> As may. Thank you so much for being on the show. We really appreciate it. And we'd like to point our listeners both to your forthcoming book and to the resources on your website. 
Thank you so much for having me. So my forthcoming book is The Collected Schizophrenias, which is coming out February 5th, 2019. And my website is com. Thanks so much, Esme. It's so wonderful to talk to you again. That's it for this episode of the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. We'd like to thank our intern producers, Kelsey Beck and Stephen Power, as well as transcriptionist Damon Johansson. Our theme music is by Travis Workman. If you or a loved one are experiencing mental health challenges or need assistance, please seek help. One hotline you can call, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, is 1-800-273-TALK. You can also text HOME to 741-741, a crisis text line, or look at this week's show notes for more resources. Idra Novi also recommends RAIN, R-A-I-N-N, in the National Sexual Assault Hotline, 1-800-656-4673. And these are all available 24 hours every day. So we hope that you, our community of listeners, take good care, and we will talk to you next time. 